thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, this week we're stepping out of the lab and into the hospital to find out about the technology that will be changing the future of healthcare. And also Connie has been trying her hand at being a medical student. This is not the right thing to say, but now that I know I'm going to do it, I've actually got butterflies in my stomach. (laughs) Not something I'll be repeating. Plus, a potential treatment for sickle cell disease and do ice baths really soothe sore muscles? I'm Connie Orbach. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, patients with spinal injuries can be robbed of the ability to move or to experience sensations from most of their bodies. And while scientists have begun to develop systems to eavesdrop on the brain's motor pathways and to turn thoughts into movements again, usually of robots or prosthetic devices, there's still no way to return any sense of touch. But now a team at the University of Pittsburgh have begun a series of experiments using brain implants that can begin to restore some of these lost sensations. Robert Gaunt. When people have a spinal cord injury, and this can happen for many reasons, a common reason is a motor vehicle accident, the connection between the brain and the rest of the body is lost. If that injury occurs at your neck level, many people end up with paralyzed legs and paralyzed arms. The brain remains functional and it does its normal thing. It's just that its ability to communicate with the limbs, with the hands and arms is lost. How might one try and surmount that problem? Well, there's a number of different approaches that people all over the world are taking. One of the things that is uh, certainly has a lot of promise, people are actually trying to regenerate and regrow the damaged portion of the spinal cord so that that connection between the brains and the limbs are restored. The way that we're tackling this problem is to actually implant little tiny wires into different regions of the brain that actually control movement and that are normally responsible for you know, feeling the hand. And so we implant these devices into the brain and by listening to these signals and then actually pumping in information, we hope to be able to actually reconnect the brain to uh, a device such as a prosthetic limb or to a computer or computer cursors, things like that. Have people not done this before though? That's right. People actually have. There's been a series of work over a number of years now by a few groups, including our own here at the University of Pittsburgh, where people have been implanting these little grids of wires into the brain and listening to the signals. And people have used those signals to be able to control a robotic arm so that they could reach out and grab objects. But one of the key things that's been missing in that is the ability to feel that object. When you reach out and grab an object with this robotic arm, you can't feel it. You don't know if you're holding it. You can see it, but you can't feel it. And so what we're doing now is trying to restore that feeling, that sense of touch 
when the robot arm goes out to grab it. You've said you send signals into the brain, but actually talk me through the nuts and bolts of how you do that physically. We know the parts of the brain that are actually normally responsible for processing this information or listening to the signals that normally come from the hand. And so what we did in this study is we actually went and put these same grids of electrodes into the region of the brain that we know is responsible for normally listening to and processing information that comes from the hand. And so what we do here is actually use little tiny electrical pulses. And these little electrical pulses make these neurons become active. And when these cells become active, the person that we're working with can perceive touch coming from that part of the hand that that part of the brain is responsible for. So you actually did this in a spinal injury patient? That's right. We've been working with a person injured about 10 years before we did the implant, and we've had these implants in place now for about a year and a half. And so when we stimulate, he feels as though sensations are coming from his own hand. What sorts of sensations does he say he feels, in inverted commas, though, when you do this? That's a great question, and it's turned out to be a really interesting part of the study. The types of things that uh, the person we're working with will say um, is that he feels sensations of pressure. Occasionally, he'll say it feels like light touch. Uh, He also says things like electrical or buzzing. Really, what we show here is that when you do provide these stimulus trains, it feels as though it is your own hand being touched. We've got a lot of work to do on making that feel more natural in some cases, but it really sort of lays the groundwork for showing that these sensations can actually be provided through a direct interface with the brain where we actually go in and sort of tickle these neurons with a little bit of electrical stimulation. And how does the patient take to this? Does he feel a bit strange, feeling that he's feeling his body doing things which it's not doing? Yeah, he has used all sorts of different words and phrases to describe this sensation. And sometimes he, he will say, yeah, it feels, you know, if it does feel strange, it's hard to, hard to describe what it feels like to have this part of your hand uh, touched or stimulated that you haven't felt in a decade. Uh, but he's able to understand those sensations very naturally. So he knows exactly, you know, if it's his pinky finger that's being touched or his index finger that's being touched. It's amazing, isn't it? And wonderful what technology is now doing. That was Robert Gaunt describing the work that he and his colleagues have announced this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Hurricane Matthew caused devastation recently when it swept through the Caribbean. The country worst hit was Haiti and one legacy of the destruction is an outbreak of cholera. This bacterial infection produces a relentless watery diarrhoea, so severe that it leads to serious dehydration, low blood pressure and even fatal organ failure. What's so sad is that Haiti had been cholera-free until a well-meaning aid effort a few years ago brought the bug back there. I heard how from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute's Nick Thompson. Haiti's recent encounter with cholera started in 2010. Prior to that, Haiti had been cholera-free for about 100 years, and it really wasn't a country that you would have associated with cholera outbreaks. But it was a country that was actually under world scrutiny in that the UN had sent a mission to uh, Haiti to rebuild infrastructure uh, in 2004. And cholera broke out in 2010. That timing, the 2010 outbreak of cholera and the circumstances that led up to that were very strongly associated 
with a fresh group of UN peacekeepers arriving from Nepal into Haiti to help rebuild infrastructure. And the UN have just uh, uh, admitted their role in the introduction of cholera into Haiti because the cholera that broke out in 2010 are very closely linked to those strains circulating within North India and Nepal at the same time. So it was actually carried there from this kind of rebuilding mission. The the cholera was actually carried over to to Haiti. That's right. It's tragic, really, because actually the mission had an incredibly positive and good intentions. That's really quite devastating. So Haiti has just been hit by this huge hurricane. And one of the big things that's being reported back from this is a massive surge in cholera. Why is that and what's going on? The whole point of the UN working in Haiti was to rebuild infrastructure in a country that really didn't have any infrastructure. And the reason that uh, cholera took hold in Haiti was because most of the accommodation after the earthquake in 2010 was destroyed. People live in very ramshackled accommodation with almost no sanitation and access to, to drinking water. And so there's been a lot of efforts to improve that. And of course, that's all been wiped away by the latest hurricane. So Hurricane Matthew has destroyed probably much of the good work that's been done in trying to rebuild that infrastructure. And so any um, destruction in the infrastructure, the sanitation, mixing of, uh, of human uh, waste and, uh, and drinking water means that that population becomes incredibly vulnerable to this diarrheal disease. And cholera is such a, you know, epidemiologically, it's such an explosive disease. It can go from very small number of cases to, you know, hundreds or even thousands of cases in a very short period of time. What can we do now to move forward and try to deal with this situation? The primary treatment for cholera is is oral rehydration. And so people get dehydrated very quickly. But if they continue to resupply their body with contaminated water, then they're just reinfecting themselves. And so the classic response to cholera is to provide clean drinking water and to rehydrate those uh, people that are most affected. A vaccine to cholera is something that is one of the main strategies for treating and preventing outbreaks, as we see in places like Haiti. And so there are several candidate vaccines that are being used. And so investment in vaccination strategies is something that we hope to see more in the future. Nick Thompson from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Connie Orbeck. You can get in touch with the programme if you wish to by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. Still to come, the hackers that have been up all night writing computer programmes to halt illegal animal trafficking. And I persuade a medical student to let me stick a needle in his arm. And it's all in the name of good radio, of course. Sounds painful, though. Before that, though, it's time for our weekly myth conception. And this time, Katani has been chilling, quite literally. Whether you're an elite athlete at the top of your game or just a keen amateur or weekend warrior, you'll want to know how best to look after your sporting body. One technique used by sports people ranging from Andy Murray to Jessica Ennis-Hill is to pop yourself in an ice bath after exercise to speed up recovery, reduce inflammation in the muscles and boost repair. At least, that's the theory. But an increasing number of studies are showing that it doesn't actually have that effect. The latest research, led by Australian and Norwegian scientists, looked at nine young men who were training a few times a week. 
They either sat in water at a chilly 10 degrees Celsius or did a low-intensity warm-down on an exercise bike. The scientists took small samples from the sporty chap's muscles and discovered that exercise causes the muscles to flood with inflammatory immune cells and increases the activity levels of genes involved in inflammation. Yet there was no difference between the two cool-downs in terms of the levels of molecules associated with stress and inflammation. Of course, this was only a small study, and it was just men, but it's not the only one to show that ice baths don't help recovery. A 2007 study in the Journal of Sports Sciences found that men who plunged themselves into an ice bath after a gruelling 90-minute sprint session had no differences in the levels of a molecule called creatine kinase, which is a marker of muscle damage, compared with those who skipped the cold soaking, although there were a few other molecular markers of recovery that did reduce with a dunking. A 2014 study of rugby players taking part in a simulated match showed that cold water baths had no effect on their recovery. People have even tested different timings and temperatures, but it doesn't make a difference. Other studies have found that ice baths might actually delay the recovery process. For example, one study testing sprinting cyclists found that a 10-minute cold water bath reduced their performance when they were asked to sprint again an hour later, compared with an active warm-down. The other thing to consider here is that although a cool shower after getting all hot and sweaty on the track or pitch might be lovely, freezing ice baths are pretty unpleasant. And given the lack of solid evidence showing that it's helpful, and some studies showing that it's actively not, why do people still go for a dunk in the ice? In fact, the main benefit seems to be psychological. Athletes think that such a horrible thing must be doing them good, and there's enough sciencey sounding stuff around reducing inflammation to make it seem like a good idea. Plus, ice bath studies suggest that people who take the plunge say they feel less sore than they would have been without the ice bath. So what do we know about the science behind other ways to recover after exercise? One thing that's often mentioned is massage. However, an analysis compiling many studies of massage, known as a meta-analysis carried out in 2016, concluded that the benefits of massage, if any, are small and may only apply for certain types of exercise rather than being a panacea for every athlete. But again, it does feel very nice and probably has a psychological benefit, if not a physical one. Anyway, as far as I'm concerned, the only ice I'm interested in after exercise is the stuff that clinks in my glass of gin and tonic. Cheers! Cheers to you too, Kat. And if you've come across any unlikely sounding science, then send it in to chris at nakedscientist.com. And we'll subject it to our usual high level of scrutiny. Sickle cell anemia is an inherited blood disorder. About a quarter of a million children are born with it every year and they suffer low blood counts, joint and bone pain, as well as other health difficulties. At the moment, treatments are quite limited, but now a team at the University of California, Berkeley, have developed a technique to genetically edit the bone marrow cells that produce the affected blood cells and fix the problem. So far, they've proved it works in a dish and they've also done it in mice given human blood cells. Researcher Mark DeWitt told me how. Individuals that have sickle cell disease produce red blood cells that have an abnormal or sickled shape. And these so-called sickle red blood cells can clog blood vessels. And in so doing, it can also cause chronic pain, organ failure, pulmonary hypertension. So individuals that have the disease have a dramatically reduced quality of life and 
even in developed countries like the UK or the United States, only live until about an average age of 40. How is the disease managed if someone presents with sickle cell disease? How do we look after them? Individuals with sickle disease are um, often managed using blood transfusions. So you transfuse healthy blood to replace the sickled blood. There is a pharmacological intervention, hydroxyurea, which has serious side effects but can reduce the manifestations of sickle disease. There is a treatment for the disease, and that's a bone marrow transplant. And how does that work? The same as if you're getting a bone transplant for leukemia. You find a suitable bone marrow donor, and you, what we call ablate, or basically kill off the bone marrow in the recipient, and then you take bone marrow from the healthy donor and infuse it into the recipient. And so you basically get new bone marrow, and then you're effectively cured. The rationale, of course, being that the new bone marrow doesn't have the genetic problem that makes sickle cell disease, which is why the people are better. But it's obviously a very radical step to take, isn't it, with a lot of risk attached. So what are you trying to do instead? We're developing methods to correct an individual's own bone marrow. We know exactly the nature of the mutation. We know exactly where it is in the genome. The sort of idea is that you would take the bone marrow out from the patient. You would correct it using this technology called CRISPR-Cas9, and then you take the corrected bone marrow and put it back inside the uh, patient. How practical is this? Do you think that you could treat enough cells and edit them in this way to put the gene right and then get enough of them back into the patient to make their disease symptoms go away? We think that we can. One only needs to correct a small minority of the bone marrow for the patient to be functionally cured of the disease because the healthy cells will outcompete the diseased cells in your blood and in your bone marrow. So what evidence have you got that this is going to work? What we did in this study was we obtained bone marrow cells from an individual with sickle cell disease, and then we corrected the mutation using CRISPR-Cas9. And then we confirmed that they appear to be healthy, and they produce significant quantities of adult hemoglobin, and then engrafted the edited cells into a mouse model. The edited cells can successfully engraft in a mouse and persist over a period of four months. And this tells us that the edited stem cells are viable for a transplant-type procedure. Indeed, that you haven't rendered them unhealthy, that they can survive, and presumably were they to go into a patient they would have a good prospect of finding their way to the bone marrow and then setting up the production of fresh, healthy red blood cells that could make up for the problem the patient previously had. Correct. So how do you actually do the edit process? As in, once you've got those cells in the dish in front of you, how easy is it to do this genome switch to get rid of the sickle cell change and render the cells genetically healthy? It turns out it's actually quite easy. The way we do it is we take purified Cas9 protein, and we mix it with this thing called a guide RNA, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a little piece of RNA that guides the Cas9 protein to the sickle mutation inside the cell's genome. We also provide a short piece of DNA that programs an edit, in this case from sickle to wild type. Cas9 makes the cut, the short piece of DNA pastes in, and et voila, it's all fixed. Just like that as Tommy Cooper would say. That was Mark DeWitt, and the study we were discussing there came out this week in Science Translational Medicine. 
After habitat loss, the buying and selling of illegal animal products as decorations, medicine, jewellery or meat is the biggest threat to wildlife conservation worldwide. But it's a complex problem to solve. Do you tackle the demand, the trafficking or the poaching? Well, maybe the solution lies a little outside the box. Georgia Mills went down to ZSL London Zoo, where last weekend, when they weren't trying to track down an escaping gorilla, they were participating in a big global event. This is the sound from a room in the heart of ZSL London Zoo. Instead of the usual fare of lions or penguins, this room is full of programmers and conservationists who've been up for about two days straight. This is a hackathon. My name's Sophie Maxwell and I lead the conservation technology team here at ZSL. Hi, my name is Mavish Siddiqui. I'm the science diplomat at the US Embassy in London. So this is the first ever global zoo hackathon event. It's organised with the US State Department um, and it brings together zoos from around the world to come up with solutions to the illegal wildlife trade. Well, for the US, uh, wildlife trafficking is basically a presidential priority. So our president has basically asked for the U.S. government to look for solutions which are out of the box, 21st century solutions to basically deal with 21st century challenges. So there's 150 participants who have all come together to answer some problem statements. These problem statements have been set for them by conservationists. So conservationists have come together around the world and said, what's really going to transform and solve this problem? People have been involved in curbing wildlife trafficking for decades, and yet the trade is burgeoning. It's a $19 billion trade. Some are doing coding, they're using lots of different scripting languages, they're using massive data sets here that we have as part of ZSL, so we have big ecology data sets that they can use to feed their solutions, they're using news feeds from APIs to bust criminal networks, they are um, using uh, creative solutions as well, so we've got strategic people, coders, designers, all coming together in a real team mix to pool their skills, to, to pull this off in a 48 hour period. Can a group of volunteers build something from scratch, fueled only by copious amounts of coffee and the odd burrito, which could then be used to tackle the complex problem of the illegal wildlife trade? I met with some of the teams. Hi, so I'm Zach benham I'm a PhD student at Edinburgh University. Our team name is The Underdogs, but our sort of product is Wildcoin. Talk me through, what's Wildcoin? Essentially, Wildcoin is peer-to-peer conservation, a platform for people who have the financial resources to invest and fund conservation and those on the ground who are actually doing conservation. The idea being anyone could be a conservationist. Okay, so how how would this work? Is this something people can download? Yeah, but this would be an app which you can download on your smartphone or it's accessible to the internet. And you search for any species that you care about, that you want to preserve, or any cause such as illegal wildlife trafficking. And you can search and you can find the people and the organisations on the ground who are actually doing this stuff and you can decide how much you want to fund and who you want to fund and what you want to fund. Oh, I see. So say I'm like, I want to save the tiny red panda. I can find out who exactly is doing that work. And if the tiny red panda isn't being funded, you can post or you can say that you want to fund this and then conservationists who have the resources to actually do conservation but maybe don't have funding can be like... Okay, here's someone willing to fund this. We can do this. I'm Eddie. This is the team. We are reading palms and we're working on palm oil potential conflict zones. Deforestation and native forest land for palm oil plantations is disinheriting orangutans. 
from their native habitat. There are poachers who use the networks created by the um, palm oil trade when they're going into native forests. They're creating roads which are then give access to, to poachers. What's your um, creation going to do about this? We're creating um, an app which uh, alerts people on the ground to changes in land use. So there's a data set from the Copernicus satellite from the European Space Agency. They have two which orbit the Earth every 10 days, giving us an ability to update uh, satellite imagery every five days. From that, we can extrapolate any change in land use to be able to identify uncertified uh, palm plantations and new sources of habitat destruction and stop that from happening. A matchmaking service for conservationists and an eye in the sky monitoring illegal deforestation. Pretty impressive for 48 hours. And that was only the start. There was also an app for people to anonymously whistleblow on poaching, a Facebook bot which could tell you if there was pangolin in your stew, and a fun-looking game which raises awareness about the ivory trade. And then? Um, So Lookout is basically um, a a very user-orientated web app. This is Caroline Fletcher, slightly buzzing after her team were just announced victorious. Caroline's team had designed a system which alerted tourists about the illegal products on sale in countries they're about to visit. So a lot of people are unknowingly buying, so for example, macaw feather earrings, which look really beautiful, like you see feathers all the time, like why shouldn't you buy it? I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but actually like they're really endangered. Um, and it's creating that awareness, creating that knowledge um, about unknown illegal wildlife product trafficking. So Caroline's team won this prize, but what's next for all these other ideas? Back to Sophie Maxwell. Well, we were just having conversations about that now. And um, we have a portal called Wild Labs. We're encouraging everybody to register on Wild Labs to connect donors, corporations, commercial environments with ZSL, with this talent who has come to us today to take these to the next level because ZSL is wholly committed to really furthering these solutions to make impact on the ground. So some we can take away some today and actually start using those things. Um, and really what we want to do is just make sure that those evolve, they don't die, they live on and they make impact. So we might be seeing plenty of those ideas popping up in the future and hopefully before it's too late. That was the Zoo Hackathon taking place at ZSL London Zoo last week. The idea that we can go to some kind of technique or technological expertise which will you know, make the decision for us, that will be attractive to, to, to a good group of people. In this month's Naked Genetics, we're hearing more than ever about the secrets hidden in our genes, from our risk of diseases like cancer to traits such as sporting ability. But just because we can test for them, does that mean we should? Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Connie Orbach. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or at Naked Scientists on Twitter. Now, moving on to the main part of the programme, and this week we're checking in to the hospital. That's right. Addenbrooke's Hospital here in Cambridge has just turned 250 years old, and it was a momentous occasion for everyone involved. But how have hospitals gained such a firm place in our hearts, and what will they look like in the future? Medical historian Jonathan Reinartz is with us to explain how our hospitals have become the institutions that they are. Uh, Jonathan, tell us first of all, how did the whole idea of a hospital come along? When in history did that happen? 
Well, I think the first hospitals would have been much smaller than what we have today. But you have to think that moment when you have a, a large group of patients together in one place, and this often happened on military campaigns, for example, when you have empires expanding like the Roman Empire, uh, hospitals might have been set up alongside camps to treat a large number of wounded soldiers at one time. But also across countries, you would have had these religious buildings like monasteries developed, which had facilities which we might describe as hospitals, a, a place which offered hospitality, uh, but often to people who were very weak and weary from extensive travel, uh, who had maybe acquired some sickness. And eventually people realized the benefits of having care organized in this sort of way. Were hospitals initially for everybody or was this somewhere that only the needy went Absolutely. Now, this is a, a very important distinction. From, from the earliest days, hospitals were institutions for people who couldn't ordinarily afford to have a private practitioner treating them within their own home. And a home of a size which would have allowed one bedroom to essentially be set aside as a ward or a private ward, essentially. So, yes, the poor, but not all the poor, in the sense that uh, people were going to fund this sort of institution, often locally, and what they wanted to ensure was the health of people who who worked in local industries and who had helped um, people locally develop uh, wealth and, and power. So essentially, these, these institutions were for a particular type of poor, which many people described as the deserving poor. And they were deserving because they had ordinarily worked but then became sick. And in order to uh, avoid these people and entire families falling into destitution, uh, the best idea was to aid their recovery as speedily as possible by, by providing care in an institution like a hospital. When did it dawn on doctors that actually having hospitals is a good thing? Because all the time that they are dealing with people in a hospital, they're not having to do long journeys out to random places to see one person. They can see lots of people all at once and possibly learn lots of things at the same time. Absolutely. I would say that uh, one misconception is, is that these institutions uh, were run um, for the poor with medical practitioners volunteering their time through altruism, that they simply wanted to help the poor. It's clear that they offered a lot of benefits. And for medical practitioners who ordinarily were collecting fees from paying patients, they quickly realized that if they got a post at a, at a local hospital, they would be recognized as the leading practitioners locally. So it advertised your expertise. So people would do this work free of charge because it set them apart from all the other competition and pretenders. It was a very crowded medical marketplace. And if there were only few hospital positions, well, then people saw the advantage of having one of these. But at the same time, anybody who was associated with these institutions very quickly realized that they would see more patients of a particular condition than they might have seen during their entire career in private practice. Uh, and this is something that was reiterated by everyone who was involved in setting up some of the first specialist hospitals. So whether it was Moorfields Eye Hospital or, or Children's Hospital, uh, people emphasized that by spending a few weeks or even months on the wards, they would see more cases than any, any other private practitioner would have seen through their careers. And that immediately translated into expertise that you could have by affiliating yourself with hospitals. And people certainly recognized that advantage. And that, that would lead a lot of practitioners to spend time in hospitals. And presumably underpinned the whole ethos and idea of a teaching hospital. 
Well, absolutely. Once once you get these teams together, then uh, one of the natural affiliations is is to connect these hospitals with uh, with the medical schools locally. So. Uh, eventually, um, any any reputable medical school would only be recognized in the the Victorian period if it had uh, a large, a sizable teaching hospital connected to it, like Addenbrooke's, like uh, Charing Cross, like um, any teaching hospital today. It started with a certain number of beds, usually about 100, not a, a dozen as might have existed in the first uh, general hospital when it appeared locally, but guaranteeing at least uh, a certain number of patients and uh, enough enough space f- to bring an entire medical school into the hospital. So this tradition of walking the wards was 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 very much there when you when you look at the first provincial medical schools in this country, for example. And when did this transformation, seeming transformation, occur, which took us from this small stable with you know a handful of patients in it, to the huge great institutions that hospitals are globally today? Well, I think that that transition is really one that depends on the local economy. And I think uh, if you're talking about a hospital in a capital city, of course, there's a lot of national pride involved. People will certainly in, uh, invest in this sort of institution. Uh, you have to understand when, when these hospitals were first established, there were very few large buildings like this in most communities. People, they took notice and they, they often included hospitals and in their, their visits. Royalty from other countries coming to this country would have included a hospital visit on their, their visit. And uh, gradually, as you see this kind of development in other countries, the primary institution to ensure is established is a hospital. So in a lot of other countries around the world, um, there was a, it was clearly an object of civic pride. Uh, in the bigger the hospital, the stronger the economy, the stronger the nation. And especially in countries like China today, they build hospitals bigger than any we've seen before. And that is just one more uh, indication of how large and, and strong their economies have become. Made in China. Jonathan, thank you very much. That's Jonathan Reinartz, who is from the University of Birmingham. As Jonathan mentioned, hospitals have become a place of training and they're where all our future doctors take their first steps into medicine. But how on earth do you train a doctor in the many varied and technical skills required to be able to treat everyone that comes through the doors? Well, in medicine, the best way to learn is to do. So I popped down to Cambridge University's Clinical Skills Lab to get some training of my own. So, a couple of needles. Tubes for blood. A couple of wipes to clean the skin. Some swabs for afterwards. Taking blood. One of the many skills that all medics learn before they graduate. But how do you teach such a thing? Well, instead of sending a first-timer to stick a needle in a patient's arm, students are sent to the clinical skills lab, a practice room fully kitted out with plastic arms and bags of blood. I persuaded fifth-year student Callum Worsley to take me along and give me a taste of being a medical student. First up, choose your arm. Choice is yours. They've all got these little name bands on them. Who have we got here? Mo Sislak. Isn't he the bartender in The Simpsons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not yellow at all. Well, not yet. (laughs) Not until I've got hold of him. Okay, so what's next? Wash your hands, gloves on. Part of the realism of this is to talk to this arm as if you would to a patient. Next, add a tourniquet around the upper arm to increase the blood pressure. And it's time to pick your vein. If you just run your finger and right, you can feel a little bump where the vein is. And if you press on it, it feels a bit sort of spongy. Then, give the arm a wash... Grab your needle and... Mr Sislak, sharp scratch coming up, OK? 
There we are. So we're in the right place. We pull this back oh, yeah. on the tube and now we've got nice red stuff in the tube. Mr. Sislak. Success. Right, so that looks it's easy, right? Now we'll just ask Mr. Sislak to press on there for a couple of minutes to make sure you're not bleeding anymore. And we'll label these to make sure they go to the right place. Perfect. Well, I mean, you did that one. <laughs> Seen one. How do you want to do one? Yeah, I guess so. You're going to have to hold the microphone. That's fine. <laughs> Callum took me back through the steps one by one, and it didn't go too badly. Or at least Mr. Sislak didn't complain. But a plastic arm is a far cry from a real one. And that's why in medical school, students will practice on each other for a more realistic experience. So Callum, how about it? Would, would I be able to practice it on you? I hate it. But we'll find you someone. <laughs> OK, OK. Or, OK, I'll see if we can persuade someone around this building to let me. Not so keen then. Well, luckily for the unsuspecting staff of the Deacon Centre, I managed to persuade Callum to do his bit for radio. You're going to let me take your blood after having said it's something that really freaks you out. Well, you get a bit used to it. We've all tried doing it on each other. OK, the pressure is definitely on, though. Or, this is not the right thing to say, but now that I know I'm going to do it, I've actually got butterflies in my stomach. <laughs> not very reassuring. Luckily, Callum didn't change his mind and successfully coached me to taking his blood. But I don't think I'll be hanging up the microphone just yet. And I'm just going to yep. just prod it in. Done. Oh, and it's filling. Perfect. And this one doesn't look like Ribena, it looks like real blood. Oh. That's it. No, just relax. <laughs> You're the one who's having your blood taken. And I'm the one that's hands are shaking. There you go now. Open that door. Clearly, yeah. I have a lot to learn. And even if I did manage to hit the vein first time, my shaky hands and anxiety would not have put the patient at ease. And that's a lot of what is taught at medical school how to act with patients. But how much of a difference can a good bedside manner really make? Well, according to Annie Cushing from Queen Mary University in London, quite a lot. Physical health like blood pressure and blood sugar control in diabetics are shown to be improved, as well as emotional health. Women with breast cancer are better able to adapt to their diagnosis and less likely to have depression when they feel their communication with their doctors is good. Communication is obviously also important in helping patients manage their conditions such as um, lifestyle changes. And we do know that a high proportion of drugs, uh, between a half and two thirds, are not taken properly um, or as recommended by patients. So it has been suggested that improving medicines taken by patients may have a far greater impact on clinical outcome than any improvements in new treatment methods. So the way a doctor communicates is important. But how do you teach this sort of thing? Send them off with a list of the right and wrong things to say? We have particular sessions where we use actors who can play the part of a patient with a particular condition or problem. And the students get to practice. Um, we sometimes video record them so that they can see themselves and they get feedback from the patient on what was working for the patient or what they found difficult in terms of understanding um, the student or in terms of aspects of uh, the kind of non-verbal side, whether they felt the student was interested in them and how they detected that. We also encourage our students to actually ask patients for feedback when they're out there in clinic. 
um, to ask for any comments on how they found it talking to the student. And in these ways, we deliberately approach the learning of communication skills as part of good medical practice. As ever, the way you do something can be just as important as how you do it. That was Queen Mary University's Annie Cushing, and before her, Cambridge University medical student Callum Worsley. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Connie Orbach, and Chris Smith. Still to come, hospitals in the digital age. Are we on the brink of a whole new way of doing healthcare? But first, the hospital might be the safest place to be when you're acutely ill. But bringing so many vulnerable people together isn't without risk, primarily owing to infection. Luckily, most hospitals these days have a dedicated team in place to spot threats before they even become a problem. Connie went down to Addenbrooke's hospital to find out how they do it. Good afternoon, Infection Control. Hello, how can I help you? My name's Cheryl Trundle. I'm one of a team of infection control nurses... I've been working at Addenbrooke's for a, a long time now, so I've seen most things. Does he still have diarrhoea? I mean, I'm assuming if he's going home, he doesn't have diarrhoea. So does he have diarrhoea or not? Depending on the signs and symptoms, viral diarrhoea and vomiting, certainly in a gram of, of stools, in a gram of poo, there are millions of viral particles, so obviously it's very infectious and easily picked up by anyone in the near vicinity. So we need to get on top of these things as quickly as we can. So there are all sorts of reasons why it's good to prevent infections and reduce them to as much as we can. And the statistics for for Europe say that over 4 million patients are infected by hospital-acquired infection or healthcare-associated infections every year, which is a huge number. And that can lead to 6 million extra days of hospital stay and 370,000 deaths due to infection. And the costs of that are enormous, over 7 billion euros. Hospitals are places of healing, but they're not without risk, and in particular, the spread of disease. To minimise these risks, there's a specialised team of people ready to jump into action at a moment's notice from the wards. The sort of questions we would need to know are names of patients, what their underlying diagnosis was, what were their current signs and symptoms that would make her anxious and have caused her to call us, how many patients were affected, were any staff affected. So it's really getting all the information that we can to build up a picture to help us to move forward. Once the team have all the info, they'll collect stool samples to send to the lab for analysis. These results come back pretty quickly, but to stop the virus spreading, action is often taken straight away. Communication is key and other hospital teams are quickly alerted, as well as the local community. Old people's homes and GP surgeries all have a hotline to the hospital. We would first of all perhaps close a bay if patients were infected or involved, or perhaps two bays on a ward. If it's more than that, then we would close the ward down. We would stop patients from going back to nursing homes we would also uh, restrict visitors and staff movements would be restricted as far as we could. After a flurry of activity, the team have done all they can and the next few hours become a waiting game. There's no specific treatment for most viral illnesses, including diarrhoea and vomiting. We'd make sure the patients were well hydrated, kept comfortable. It's usually something that only lasts between 48 to 72 hours and the patient usually gets better without any specific treatment. 
early recognition is is the most important thing. So making sure ward staff know what to look for. And as soon as they think there's a problem, they phone us. Once it's got a hold, you can imagine on a ward of 36 patients that that's a lot of people to go through and, you know, can have serious consequences. Because often a lot of these people are very vulnerable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And while you and I would get better in 24, 48 hours, some of these people will suffer for longer. That was Cheryl Trundle from the Addenbrooke's Hospital Infection Control Team. We've just heard how hospitals are working to tackle infection, but another solution would be to keep people out of hospital or their local doctor's surgery altogether. There's a new app and it's called Babylon Health, which claims it can bring a medical diagnosis to a user's pocket. Ali Parser is the founder and the CEO and is with us now. So Ali, first of all, tell us, what actually is Babylon Health? It's uh, an app that brings to you your doctor as much as possible in your pocket wherever you are. So you can make appointments in seconds, see a doctor on your mobile phone as you FaceTime with anybody else within minutes. If you have a symptom, you can triage yourself. And we have one of the world's uh, most uh, advanced artificial intelligence that look at billions of variations of symptoms and very accurately will tell you that what you should do next. We have the ability to monitor you, everything from the health of your livers to your kidney to your heart and have it all in your pocket for you to see. We keep your clinical records and we can do tests uh, and uh, send you kits uh, when necessary. We connect you with the specialists and uh, psychologists again in the same way. So just to unpack that a little bit, so people with a smartphone, you would download this app and install it and then it would be what, a pay-per-go system or is it free? How does it work? You could do it all of the above. And if you want to buy it and use it yourself, uh, you either pay £5 a month and you have unlimited access to a GP or you just pay £25 and use it when you have uh, you want to see a GP. But if you ask a question and you check your symptoms, all of the rest is free. Let's talk about the AI, the artificial intelligence bit, for a second then. So you're saying that you have got a clever system running here that can compare my symptoms, that I would just tap in, I'd tell the app what I'm experiencing, and it would intuitively begin to work out what might be wrong with me. That's correct. Tell me how it works. So it looks at the variety of uh, probability of the, of the combination of various symptoms and say that what could possibly be wrong with you according to the combinations of the symptoms you have given it. No different than a chess player, for instance, play chess, looks at the probabilities of different moves and where that can end up. So we've launched a symptom checker, which triages. So it does what a clinical nurse will do in a triage in an A&E, and it will tell you whether you should go see a doctor or go to a pharmacy or the kind of stuff NHS 111 does. But it does it in an average in one minute. It's free. It's done by a machine rather than... Uh, any human being involved and we but, published a paper when we launched it that it shows it's it's more accurate than than a nurse and a doctor and you expect it to be because no human brain can look at billions of variations but, of but if i may the thing is i went to medical school for a long time to learn to ask people about things that they might not think to volunteer so yes if they're saying i've got this symptom and this symptom But what your system can't do is to take a look at that person, or can it, and spot the things that they haven't thought are relevant, but which actually are pretty important or are more important than the thing they think is wrong with them. 
And and you're absolutely right, Chris. So a system that does nothing else but check with artificial intelligence and tell you what's wrong with you, you're right. It's not a right system for, for the kind of technology that exists today. So that's why we will uh, let you that, look, you need to talk to one of our doctors, book an appointment when within a few minutes a human doctor will come appear on your screen and you will talk to a human doctor. Well, you you make the case very well for... Uh, what happens in a country like the UK, a rich country, it has GPs on tap, it has an NHS. But there must be places in the world where this sort of technology could be very readily harnessed and bring enormous benefits over and above what anything you could achieve here. That's correct. Precisely because of that, Chris, we went to Rwanda, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, and see that how can we give the same quality of care at the prices that people of Rwanda can afford? And we launched in Rwanda about three weeks ago, and the results has been amazing. Uh, most people in Rwanda do have a mobile phone. It's early days yet, but it is certainly our intention to try and put an affordable health care into the hands of everybody on earth. I know I've spent a long time learning to talk to patients face to face, but if I'm now faced with talking to them on a screen where I can't physically reach out and touch them and the technology may be dubious, um, are doctors comfortable working like that? Do they, do they express any discomfort working that way? No, they are very comfortable because, first of all, we train them. We vet them very carefully. We make sure they're highly experienced doctors. We don't uh, hire doctors who don't have, in average, uh, 10 years of experience and so on and so forth. But you're right. It is not a problem to be taken lightly. But what is the alternative? Think about it. In Britain, one in five of us can't get to see a doctor that we want at the time we want. One in eight of us get misdiagnosed when we do, so on and so forth. But that is in Britain. In Rwanda, or in, in for 50% of the world population in developing countries, there is no access or very little access to healthcare. The alternative is much worse than uh, the remote uh, uh, ability of getting to those patients. And is this the direction in which you see healthcare going or is this the next big healthcare revolution that you anticipate seeing? Absolutely. I think what we're going to see in healthcare is what we've seen in every other area of human endeavour, where technology will come in and disrupt the old models of delivery and make it a lot better. Uh, what we are doing is just the very beginning of uh, what can be done. You just look at what has happened in diagnostics, for instance, in the last 10 years. It has improved at two times the rate of Moore's law. Uh, we will see the same improvement across the systems of delivery of healthcare. And I think that soon uh, we will do with healthcare what people like Google have done with information, make it affordable, accessible, put it in the hands of everybody on earth. That, that is not a dream that is unachievable anymore. And lastly, Ali, what's to stop someone like me thinking, well, that's a blinking good idea and just copying it? I would certainly hope you do, because it is irrelevant who manages to put that uh, into the hands of everybody. What matters to humanity is that our best brains, best talents, best resources mobilize to solve one of the biggest challenges human beings have. The more people participate in this endeavor, the better for us all. But I put it to you, if I'm on your app and it tells me in rural Rwanda, in the middle of nowhere, I'm having a heart attack... Really, knowing that isn't going to change the game, is it? If I'm nowhere near a hospital who can help me. Correct. 
But uh, look, you have to start somewhere, right? It's like saying that uh, if I am, uh, if you put a car in my hand and I'm driving uh, or you've sent me an ambulance, but uh, there is nothing on the other side, you know, so on and so forth. Everything we do, every effort in technology starts somewhere and it gets better and better. Uh, so today we get you a doctor. Tomorrow, perhaps we can create the logistics to get you the drugs. Uh, and the day after we could do something else. There are so many people solving so many different areas of healthcare using technology uh, that uh, collectively, no one on their own, but collectively, it, they will melt everything that is in existence in medicine today into a, to create a completely new solution that will be miles better than what we have now. Just look at every other area from retail to uh, consumer uh, shopping to banking, what technology has done with it. And I'm sure healthcare will be another beneficiary. So exciting times ahead then. Thank you very much. That's Ali Parser from Babylon Health. And thank you before him to Jonathan Reinhardt. And to end the show... It's Question of the Week, and this time Kirsten Gottfried has been mastering time answering Troy's question. If you were to live on Jupiter for 50 years and then return to Earth, what would the time difference be back on Earth due to Jupiter's increased gravity? Would taking a jaunt to Jupiter for 50 of our Earth years result in me being older or younger than my Earthling counterparts? Luckily, physicist Dr. Stuart Higgins is on hand to join me for a mission. Okay, let's go to Jupiter. Take the next left and proceed for 484 million miles. Uh, uh, let's speed that up and pretend we could just teleport ourselves directly to Jupiter's gas surface. Jupiter is much bigger than the Earth. It has about 320 times the mass. It's huge. Assuming we could live on Jupiter for 50 years and, you know, somehow survive the lack of oxygen, giant storms, and the fact that there's no real solid land to stand on, then the stronger gravitational field of Jupiter's greater mass would have some peculiar effects. Crucially, compared to a clock on the Earth, a clock on Jupiter would tick more slowly. According to Einstein's theory of general relativity, time passes slower in a gravitational field. This is known as gravitational time dilation. Being near a massive object makes time move more slowly. So on Jupiter, the big boy of our solar system, how much time would we save? On Facebook, I suggested 100 years. 1.2345 minutes was put forward by Martin. Stuart, please don't leave me hanging any longer. Well, it's not much. For each second on Jupiter, your wristwatch would be running roughly 20 nanoseconds slower than a clock left back on Earth. Over 50 years, you'd end up being about 31 seconds younger compared to if you'd stayed on Earth. And yes, for general relativity fans, this is very much a simplification, not taking into account lots of other factors, but it gives us an idea of the incredibly small size of this effect. So a lot of effort for 31 seconds. But why do we even care about Einstein and all this time dilation? Turns out that even though the differences are tiny, they're big enough to cause huge problems with the global positioning system, GPS. The constellation of GPS satellites that orbit the Earth each have their own clock on board, which broadcasts its signal to receivers, such as your smartphone. By comparing how long it's taken the signal to reach you from different satellites, the system can work out where you are. But there's a problem. The clocks in space are further away from the Earth than your receiver is. They're in a weaker gravitational field. That means, after taking into account other effects, time runs faster for the satellites. And while the differences are tiny, over a single day it can build up so that your GPS receiver is wrong by a whopping 10 kilometres. Oh dear, I appear to be lost. Luckily, the satellites have Einstein's equations built in, so they account for gravitational time dilation. 
So trip to Jupiter may not be the physics version of anti-wrinkle cream, but at least physics saves us the worry lines from getting lost. Thank you, Stuart, and thanks, Troy, for the question. And for next week, Matt emailed in with a question. How can newly produced photons travel at the speed of light instantaneously without causing a force in the opposite direction? Why don't I get thrown backwards when I switch on my torch? So if you can shed some light on this question, send your answer to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Tweet at Naked Scientist or get involved in our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests and also to Connie Ormack for putting the programme together. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.